Hello and welcome to Medico Legal Expert Insight. My name is Jessica and in this podcast, we interview medical and legal professionals to help connect and understand when, what, why and how both sides interpret the information given to them. The goal is to share expert opinions from both sides of the medico-legal industry. I do want to say a huge thank you to eReports for the support and access to all these incredible experts. So let's get started and connect the dots through conversation. Today, Roseanne Brash, Senior Injury and Claims Consultant, is going to share with us how to avoid supplementary reports with a killer letter of instruction. She's going to give us some insights into what is the key to a killer letter of instruction, what evidence she provides to an expert which has resulted in zero supplementary reports, and in what circumstance she engages a medical expert in her area of expertise. So let me share a little bit about Roseanne. She fell into the workers' compensation industry almost 30 years ago when she she deferred her tertiary studies and was threatened with international exile if she didn't get a job stat. Roseanne started working with an insurer during an era where claims management was mostly defined by mail counts. She got an opportunity to move into a self-insurance management role and subsequently an industrial relations role, which was a defining point in her career. It was during this period, Roseanne really saw the impact of workplace injuries and illness as the injured worker became more than a name and a claim number on a file, but a real, a real, real people she engaged with on a personal level. It was during this time that Roseanne was able to see the importance of early intervention and the value of broader wellness and well-being strategies. Fast forward and Roseanne has been back in consulting for the last seven years and would say that she's fortunate to have her dream job that ticks all her boxes. People don't usually associate work cover as being a role that helps people, but in her current role, she has the opportunity to work with clients to elevate their response to injury and illness and how it impacts on a holistic workplace culture. Roseanne's work is now broader than just work-related matters and includes supporting her clients with the management and oversight of personal injury and illness. It's in this space that she utilizes independent medical exams and has actually been a long-standing user of e-reports. Well, thank you very much, Roseanne. It is an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Jess. It's nice to be here. Well, it is a pleasure and let's just get straight into it because it sounds like you do write a killer letter of instruction. So tell us how. Thanks so much. Look, I think it has two parts. So as you touched on, when I uh, contact e-reports to arrange an IME, it's with my personal injury and illness management hat on and that is generally a process where the the value of the IME or the, the requirements of the IME rather is where we're looking at evaluating an individual's capacity to perform the inherent requirements of their job. So bearing in mind 
that one of the potential outcomes of this process could be a uh, separation of employment. It's really, really critical that the independent report or opinion is really comprehensive because you've actually got, there's a person at, at the centre of this and, and potentially, you know, it could be career-ending for them depending on the type of injury uh, or where they are in their life. So the first thing I would recommend is there has to be a really comprehensive overview mm. of the status. Okay, so the background information uh, about the individual, what brought you to the point that yeah, an IME is required, so how long they've been off work, what they do. Ideally, that should also include a bit of a pricing of a critical task analysis of the substantive position you're asking the IME to evaluate the patient against. Mm. Um, and then in terms of the questions, there's probably six key questions I ask. Remembering, of course, again, I'm not actually asking questions about work relationship because that's not the purpose of this exercise. So I'm more than happy to go through the questions with you if you think that would be value to your listeners. Yeah, definitely. I'd love to know the actual questions that you ask. Okay. So the first question would be, what is the diagnosis of the medical condition and is the condition temporary or permanent? Yeah. So I'm trying to get a, a, an idea as to whether or not, you know, this person is going to make a recovery. Second question would be, what are the prospects of a sustained recovery in the foreseeable future? Third question would be, if the condition is deemed temporary, what is the likely time frame that that person could return to unrestricted pre-injury duties and hours? The fourth question would be that in the event that the individual is deemed unfit or sorry, deemed fit to perform their position on a full-time basis, is there a risk of exacerbating the condition? And if so, what is the level of risk and how could that risk be avoided? Mm-hmm. The fifth question would be, if the individual is able to return to work, what accommodations slash workplace adjustments, if any, could be made to enable the individual to safely perform their work with minimal risk of aggravation or exacerbation of the underlying medical condition? And finally, if there are any accommodations or adjustments that could be provided, how long would it be necessary for the employer to provide those accommodations? Awesome. And have you come up with those questions over the, you know, the 30 years that you've been in the industry? Have you sort of played with the letter of instruction and just come to, you know, these six questions where it's it's kind of like your your um your secret potion i suppose like these are the six questions and you know it works and that that's sort of it's obviously come from the experience of maybe letter of instructions that haven't quite explained or asked the right questions in the past would that be right i think that's a fair assessment and as human beings we tend to learn most from our failures so i think that that has become a bit of a a living document so every time, you know, and that means have an over a period of time where you get a reporting that just doesn't hit the mark. Mm. It's going back and, and reflecting on did I ask the right question, you know, or did was the question probably detailed enough to give me the level of detail I needed? Mm. 
Mm. Um, and I, I support clients and advocate for them in uh, their work uh, forums around unfair dismissal. And so it's the learnings that have come from that over time as well, where perhaps we've been a little bit lacking mm. in some some detail, which perhaps hasn't had the outcome we wanted at the end. So you go back, you debrief, you you fix up holes. So yes. this is probably that, that template I've been using now maybe for about the last, I don't know, five years. And I haven't had any issues in terms of the quality of the information that I've been getting back. But again, the caveat on that is that all interplays with the level of detail, the background information that you provide the IME. Mm. So they can be answered in context. Yeah. So you always tailor the evidence that you give to the expert according to the case, but the questions tend to remain the same. Would that be right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So the, the history is always individual specific. Yeah. Yeah. So that would, um, so what, what evidence and background information do you provide to the expert to make the most out of that report? Well, what I like to do is I like to give complete transparency to the IME. So that includes copies of correspondence that's actually gone to the individual, explaining to them uh, the purpose of why we, we will be referring them to an independent medical examiner. So usually that correspondence would actually have some detail around their history and where they are in terms of absence of work or they've been on modified duties for X period of time and we are commencing a process to evaluate their capacity to do the inherent requirements of their position as a mm. insert job title. So all of that correspondence actually goes to the IME so they can actually see what the purpose of this appointment is. And a critical task description. Um, I should also add that if this is on the back of a work cover claim that's being concluded, no information regarding the work cover claim is actually provided in that. So no evidence. Mm. Uh, I could probably reference it that the individual has been absent following a workplace injury on X date and you know here we are here. But the actual evidence, the physical evidence around that claim is not provided. Okay, why is that? Well, because when an individual signs a, a claim form, there is privacy laws in place. So mm -hmm. as an employer and you receive a certificate of capacity, you receive any information regarding a work cover claim. It's actually for the purposes of the administration of their claim or supporting return to work mm. so there there are some legalities about using that information procured through that process for another process um via an industrial instrument which yeah. is what this is so we're, we're very much in that hr uh, pocket when we're looking at inherent requirements so we don't use it yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. So, um, so you, um, provide a job description. Did you, you said that, didn't you, to the IME? Well, actually a lot broader. Most job descriptions are a, oh, I'm, I am generalizing here. I apologize. <laughs> and I apologize to your listeners, but 
most job descriptions are a, a collection of motherhood statements. Yeah. Which really don't give a third party a lot of detail about what that person does. Mm. So what we do is look some some companies out there might have actually done that work at the front end. They may have job dictionaries. Uh, that goes down to the, you know, that drills right down to the functional requirements of a job. Mm. So if that if that client does that, doesn't have that in place, that's something that I assist them with. So we literally break it down into, you know, time, weight, you know, it, I guess the functional capacity of the role, but we also touch on the, I guess, the psychological function insofar as what would be, the um, the cognitive requirements, you know, concentration, judgment, that sort of stuff. Mm. So we make it very, very comprehensive. I also have a preference to use photos in my critical task analysis. So it's a very, very comprehensive document. Yeah. And so, again, so you said about, photos. Yeah, photos of the task. Oh, so, wow, I like that. I mean, well, look, I'm, I'm a very visual person. Yeah, <laughs> so, I am too. And, <laughs> Yeah, so when you can actually translate, you're looking at a picture and then you've got the explanatory note next to it and you have that bit of a aha moment. Mm. Look, and I also feel again that it's just really, really important that this process, given that one of the possible outcomes of this process could be uh, separating the employment relationship, it's really, really critical and I think it's also ethical to mm. provide as much information about that individual, their job, so the IME can actually make a comprehensive and fair decision mm. because you're relying on that decision in terms of looking at what are the next steps. Yeah. So is there anything else that you would provide for an IME, like anything that you want to add, anything that you've missed, just so we can give the listeners a really good um, idea of what, what, you've, what you give to the expert? Information is key. Mm. And, and I guess that probably this is more of a, um, I suppose, a suggestion to any of your listeners is make sure that you've done the work to have all of this information ready before you start the process mm. because and take the time to get that critical task analysis, you know, correspondence. It's, it's just about having all the information there that explains the purpose of why the IME has been arranged. Mm. So and then if you've got all of that there, when the questions come in, you know, I, I think it's easy to then be able to go, okay, this is where it all, all sits. Yeah. So in what circumstance would you engage an expert? It would be when we're talking about work cover, um, you know, the work-related matters, generally the IME is, is arranged by the insurer or the agent. Mm-hmm. So I'm arranging IME very much in that personal injury and illness. Mm. So that could be for a variety of reasons. It could be because of the nature of the condition. Um, it might be chronic in nature, the type of industry that person works with, uh, a whole raft of reasons. But it's not a process that you start uh, prematurely. And I would 
say that reflecting on uh, the number of times I've supported clients with this, which is probably, you know, well above 30, mm. uh, there's generally been a very long period of time between the event and the point that the decision's made or I advise my clients, look, I think it's probably time that we now need to go down this path to assess the, the individual's you know, capacity to do the inherent requirements. Mm. And would it be when you're assessing the individual's inherent requirements, how do you select the expert? Obviously, based on the condition, would it be psychiatrists, occupational physicians? What sort of experts have you used? Across the board. And in fact, the recent one I did, um, and this was in uh, New South Wales, actually, mm. in uh, regional New South Wales. And uh, I, I had great support from e-reports. We were trying to work out the best. Uh, I suppose specialist mm. to examine the individual, and after a lot of a lot of discussion, a lot of guidance, he ended up sourcing a physiotherapist mm. uh, to to do that. So I've used across the whole gamut. Usually, I've been working in the industry for years, and whilst I'm not health qualified, you know, you have enough, I suppose business intelligence to go, okay, this is the injury, this is probably the IME or the you know, specialty that I need. But there have been many occasions where I'm dealing with someone that has multiple injuries. Mm-hmm. And in that case, I've run e-reports and I've asked for guidance and they've gone and, and spoken to colleagues and sometimes, in some cases, some of the IMEs you deal with and they've come back to me and advised me accordingly. So that's been a, a really great part of the service as well. Yeah, nice. And I have to ask, you mentioned um, when I was introducing you, Roseanne, that you, you can, you've you now identified the importance of early intervention. Can you explain that a little bit more? Oh, look, absolutely. I've been with Rework for oh, seven, seven years seven and a half years now and very much a lot of what we do is is in that early intervention space and I and I talk about early intervention in its truest form uh, where it's at the point of injury and over the years I have become a firm believer that what the response to injury or illness in those first 24 to 48 hours mm. is really really critical not just in terms of making sure that the individual is hooked into the right, uh, you know, care with quality providers, but it it can be a, a defining moment in the employer-employee relationship and trust. Yeah. And one of the one of the things that I talk with my clients is, and when we're structuring you know, the injury management programs and um, generally when I come in, that's what I review and and align that to the organisation's values and it's okay, what do you want to be? Who do you think you are in terms of how you respond to injury and illness in your workplace? And we look at their policies and their framework and then I give them my opinion on whether or not there's a, a bit of a marriage going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I work very much from that mentality that we are all, we're living in a, an increasingly 
cyber world, electronic world, uh, where things are happening remotely. But I think what's inherent in all of us is we want to feel valued. Mm. We want to feel that if you've invested a lot of your time, your intellectual energy into an organisation, at the point that you're injured, you want to know that someone cares. So most of us, if something has happened significant at work and you go home and you share that with your family, you would expect that one of your family members might say, what did your manager say? What did your boss say? What did whoever say? Mm. If, if the response has been silent, I, I feel very strongly what can happen and what I've been told has happened and particularly when I've been dealing with matters where there's a very aggrieved employee at the centre of it. Mm. It's that feeling that no one cares to ask and I've been a loyal employee for X number of years and then I got injured and all of a sudden I was treated like a problem. Wow. So that's... Yeah, so that really, I guess, that insight probably, I appreciated it in self-insurance. Mm. And in self-insurance, in, in self-insurance model, of course, you're underwriting your own risk. So there's a whole lot of reasons why early intervention is really, really critical and having those early return to work focused discussions mm. are important. So that, that would be, I guess, the model in how I provide service to my clients and and the type of injury management support that uh, I recommend as as a protocol. Yeah, perfect. Well, this has been very insightful, Roseanne. I really appreciate your time today. I'm sure our listeners are going to get a huge amount of value and some really good actionable insights into our conversation as well. So thank you so much. No, thanks. Thank you for inviting me. certainly been a pleasure. Awesome. Well, you have a lovely day. Thank you so much, Roseanne. Thanks, Jess. Bye. Bye.